Thank you. It's great to be with all of you and to meet new friends and to be part of this Holy Ghost Equipping Center, Epicenter. It's great to see all these leaders and people committed to Christ together in one tent. It's very powerful. Um, I thank God for the apostolic work of, of Russell and Maeve and, and all of you who make this possible. Um, I didn't bring any books. I'm a bit lazy because I didn't feel like hassling with the border. So all my books are on Kindle. You could download them. There's seven books. One is free, uh, How to Turn Failure to Success, uh, right on the bottom of the header of my website. Uh, you could just download that. It's only 25 pages. Uh, then there's four books, theological books on the kingdom of God, one on generational blessings, the enduring kingdom, how to connect marriage and family and perpetuating family dynasties as God's primary tool for societal transformation. Can't separate marriage and biological children from the kingdom or from seven mountains, whatever you want to call it. So uh, that book will fit along with your desire to see healthy families and deliverance. I also have a book um, I wrote in 1998 that God would not allow me to release it. I, I can't understand why. I have no wisdom on this, but uh, I just released it about eight months ago, and I wrote it uh, right before 9-11, and uh, it just shows the incredible prayer movement that took place in New York City and how we released a spirit of travail on our city uh, with people groaning thousands of people groaning in the spirit for for hours um, and we knew something was going to happen uh, and we didn't know the exact date and we didn't know what it was but we knew it was something in line of judgment and we prayed and we had just mass prayer so I wrote a whole book on travail on that kind of prayer uh, to me that's the key for all transformation is is uh, very very deep Prayer. You're not going to have what God wants just with perfunctory unity meetings where you have, you know, perfunctory prayer. Um, you know, we, we have to drill down deep. So that book was uh, released about six or eight months ago. And, it, and, and when you read it, you think it was written post 9-11, but it was written pre 9-11 uh, because we had such a strong sense of what was going to happen. So I would really encourage you, especially uh, those of you who want to go deeper into God and the things of God in prayer, um, but hang on to your seat because it's extremely intense, extremely intense. That's all I could tell you. Um, so that, that's available. And then a book that uh, my most recent book I released about three months ago, four months ago, Essays on the Apostolic. It's about, uh, I think, about 175 pages, about 13 essays on the apostolic, and we get into comparing the apostolic and prophetic ministry, the office of apostle in contemporary times, the office of prophet in contemporary times, and it's, it's a lot of different stuff um, than, than it's typically uh, heard. So that, that is available, and um, if you want to get uh, subscribe on the newsletter, it's just my uh, name, josephmatera.org, or you, you, um, kingdomrevolution.us. One of those two will get you there. And every week you can get a free uh, teaching 
You can connect on Facebook every day. My assistant is posting an old article, uh, you know, that's relevant. Uh, so there's something actually every day uh, that, that you could read. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you just bless what you want to say in Jesus' name. Amen. And I try to hear from God and what I'm going to teach. And yesterday, actually when I was on the plane coming here, I wrote out my thoughts and uh, I began a teaching yesterday on experiencing Jesus in the book of Hebrews. Now, as I said yesterday, I'm more known for teaching on the kingdom of God, especially when I travel internationally and when I preach in a, a church on Sunday in my own local church, I'm more pastoral and I'm not only going to teach on that. And if I do, it'll be with a real pastoral slant. So I thought it was unusual that the Lord uh, laid this kind of message on my heart. Uh, of course, everything is connected to the kingdom. But I can't think of anything I'm more passionate about than the Lord Jesus. So I'm excited that I was able to uh, share a bit on that. So last night, we walked through several chapters of the book of Hebrews. And we talked about, uh, I'll try to remember everything we talked about. Uh, I don't minister out of notes. I usually minister prophetically, spontaneously, so that that is always a freedom. And I could always try to read what's going on in the spirit, uh, where, as opposed to just reading something that was already structured. But um, what we talked about yesterday was, uh, number one, one way to experience Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God in times past spoke to the fathers in many ways, many methods, various ways. But in his last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So we talked about how Jesus is the final word that transcends personal prophecy, personal spiritual experiences, church doctrine, uh, church traditions, canon law, and uh, any other councils or companies that we come up with or written documents, uh, the final authority has to be what Jesus already spoke, either what we have recorded in the Gospels or through those that were authorized by him to speak for him, his apostles. And so that was the first point. The second point was how uh, it says in uh, Hebrews 2, verse 13 and 14, it talks about how Jesus took upon himself flesh and blood that he might destroy the power of him who had the power of death, uh, Satan, and deliver those who all their life were in bondage to the fear of death. And so we talked about how Jesus has given us victory over sin, Satan, and death, and how that's even connected as a root cause of phobias, anxieties, and all root causes of fear come out of this fear of death. The third thing we talked about uh, in Hebrews 3, verse 1 and 2, it talks about how Jesus is our apostle and high priest. And I was talking about how Jesus, unlike the philosophers like Confucius and other philosophers um, that have individual wise sayings, even the sayings of sages, even like what we see in the book of Proverbs where there's many disconnected wise sayings, in the Hebrew tradition, 
especially from chapter 10 of Proverbs to 31. Very hard to memorize that portion of Scripture because they're disconnected pithy sayings or aphorisms, uh, however you want to term them. Jesus doesn't just give us pithy sayings, but as our apostle, he literally gives us a structure, a structure for living. That's what apostles do. They lay foundations. They are uh, master builders, as Paul described himself in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 to 14. Uh, and so as a master builder, he will give you a master plan for your life and for the church and for any organization. And, of course, he gave us the new covenant. So he brought the wineskin of the new covenant and inaugurated the kingdom and changed the laws of how we do things. And that's why we are already in a new heaven and a new earth because he said, whatsoever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. That new heaven and new earth has nothing to do with chronologically, physical, new heaven and a new earth. It has to do with how he changed the rules of the game with his coming. So it's a new way of doing things and the kingdom, the manifestation of the kingdom progressively increases with the influence of the gospel throughout the ages. And then we'll have a full manifestation of that. I could get more into that, uh, but I won't. And then we see in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 to, uh, I think it's verse 8 uh, to 11, how Jesus is our Sabbath rest, how it says that we have to labor to enter that rest, how Joshua didn't give us rest, because if he had given us rest, there would have no, uh, not been a, a reason to talk about a rest that was needed in the future. And so... We see how Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. And how um, every time God gives us a new assignment, there is going to be a new level of stress, new crises that we're going to have to grapple with, new challenges, new level, new devil, new spiritual warfare. You start preaching on the kingdom, you are now dealing with principalities over nations not just individual demons. If you're just preaching the individual gospel of salvation, you're just dealing with individual demons that come in people. Once you start preaching the kingdom and you try to implement it, now you're dealing with principalities because they hide behind ideologies uh, or images in which whole societies are structured. So principalities are not just dealing with individuals. They're dealing with the top gatekeepers of society. And they hide behind false ideologies or images or idols of, of a nation. And they deal with systemic sin, uh, the systems of sin that come out of sinful behaviors that are habit patterns and then produce uh, false systems and structures. And so uh, that's why if you begin preaching the kingdom and implementing it, you better have a network of intercessors and mature people praying. And you yourself better be somebody who seeks God, commensurate to your destiny, commensurate to your calling. Because if not, two things will happen. One, when you teach, you'll just give knowledge but no anointing. Or two, uh, you will get your butt kicked by the devil. Uh, one of those two things will happen. So if you're not a threat, he'll leave you alone and you'll just have uh, intellectual inquisitives and satisfaction, uh, you know, uh, uh, through uh, the intellectual stimulation, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It says in 1 Corinthians 8. And so you're not going to get anything but intellectual puffiness. But if you really are a threat, but you're not seeking God, you will not be able to handle the pressure that will come your way. And something is going to happen 
uh, that will cause you to stumble if you're not seeking God. So when you start preaching the kingdom, you better be ready uh, for heightened spiritual warfare because now you're not just dealing with demons that come into people. Now you're dealing with demons over structures, systems, and cities. So uh, that's, that's a whole other level that most people in the body of Christ have never even touched. Um, so you have to learn to enter his rest. And to the degree that you could enter his rest, to that degree can he give you more influence and responsibility. Because uh, as you try to do this thing in your own strength, without his grace, uh, you will not be able to handle the added responsibility and the pressure that comes with your calling. Uh, and then we talked about, last but not least, the next verse in Hebrews 4, uh, 11 and 12 and 13. It talks about how the Word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints of marrow. Uh, neither is there anything hidden from His sight, for all things are laid bare and naked unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. So we talked about how uh, if we're really serious, Jesus comes, not just uh, in revival blessing, but sometimes when he comes, he comes as a chiropractor to correct. And it's very painful because he wants us to have a reality check. He wants us to be self-aware. Someone say self-aware. And that's what it means by dividing soul and spirit. Soul represents the self-life. And spirit represents that which, as we read in Romans 7, that which is devoted and dedicated and one, and, and Jesus comes in our life. Uh, it says we're one spirit with him in First Corinthians uh, uh, 6. So we become one spirit. So that part of us is in fellowship and continual communion with God. But the mind and the emotions, the soul, um, either is dominated by the flesh or will be dominated by that part of you which is united with Christ. So the Word of God helps us discern between what is of self and what is of Christ, which means it's painful. You've got to face your pain. You have to face your trauma. We have to. I have to. Uh, nobody has arrived this side of heaven. I'm constantly grappling with who I am, what my motivations are. Uh, I do a lot of activity, and because I am an activist, I have purposely read many books on, uh, on spirituality and emotional health and uh, tried to plumb the depths of not only God but, but the human soul so that while I'm trying to win everybody, I wouldn't lose my own soul, if you know what I mean. So I think we have to be contemplative practitioners. We have to live in contemplation and reflection. We can't just be human doers. We are human beings. And if we are activists without uh, contemplation, without reflection, without seeking God, not just talking to God, but hearing God and communing with God, uh, unless we are active participants in what God is saying and doing, then we will uh, run ahead of God uh, or burn out or uh, be driven by human achievement more than by what the Father is doing. And so the Word of God uh, divides soul and spirit, which means that He wants us emotionally healthy and mature. He doesn't just want us to be anointed. Sam, uh, Samson, 
uh, was a perfect example of someone who moved in the anointing of God and in the power of God, but never had the fruits of the Spirit. He sacrificed his character for his, uh, his, uh, his power and his anointing. And uh, many people have great anointing, uh, but uh, because they have great anointing, they think they don't need to go to the cross every day. Yeah. Uh, because it's easy for them to uh, uh, you know, bear a lot of outward fruit, uh, they cheat on their inward health and inward life. And so God uh, calls us to a, a, an awakening, a self-awareness. And that's what happens when we pour over the Word of God, when we meditate in the Word of God. It divides soul and spirit, and it shows us who we really are. And that's why James chapter 2, it says that when we are hearers of the Word and not doers of the Word, we are like a man who looks in a mirror and forgets what he looks like. So we need to be free through the perfect law of liberty. Uh, and so that's basically what I talked about yesterday. So let's move on and uh, let's go to, there's so much here. Let's jump to Hebrews chapter 7 and let's experience Jesus as a type of Melchizedek. Hebrews 7, and based, based on Genesis chapter 14, when Abraham rescued his nephew Lot with 300, uh, what is it, 320 or 12, uh, I forget the number of servants that were born in his own house. So he rescued Lot, he defeated the seven kings that uh, attacked and plundered his, his house, and um, when he was coming back from the slaughter, Melchizedek met him. Uh, some believe he was a type of Christ. My personal belief is he was a Christophany. He was Christ who appeared in the First Testament, but that's debatable, I guess. Um, I have my reason for believing it was Christ, even based on what it says in, in this chapter. But be that as it may, um, Abraham gave... Melchizedek, a tithe of the spoils that he won back in war, uh, and he gained actually as well, not just one back that was stolen, but he gained spoils. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4. It says, See how great this man was to whom Abraham, and he's talking about Melchizedek, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descendants from Abraham. This man who does not have his descent from them, meaning uh, Jesus or Melchizedek, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior, that is, Abraham was blessed by the superior, Melchizedek. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And so we see here uh, Jesus uh, is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which means the king 
of righteousness, the king of Salem. Uh, it's a Jerusalem means. And so what we have here uh, is Abraham going to battle. Now, in the context of giving his tithe, he was actively pursuing his enemies, the enemies of God, and gained back the spoil of the enemies of God. He gained ground, he gained territory, and he gained possessions from God's enemies. And then out of that, he gave a tithe to God by giving it to Melchizedek. And so we see here is Jesus is a man of war. Jesus honors people who are in the battle. Uh, we find uh, uh, many people are claiming promises of God. And we see how certain things just don't happen for them, even though they're claiming these promises or confessing them. Uh, but what we have to understand is that Jesus doesn't disconnect what we say from who we are and what we do. And so if we are just saying the scripture without following through and actively pursuing what he wants us to do with our life, uh, it is very hard for him to bless it. And so we have to look at the context where it says the superior blessed the inferior. There was a blessing there. But we separate the tithe from his activity. You can't do that. In the context of his tithe, he was a warrior. He was somebody who was gaining back the spoil. He was somebody that was conquering his, God's enemies. And so what we have to look at is that God doesn't disconnect our giving from our living. God doesn't disconnect our tithe from kingdom activity. How many understand what I'm saying here? Um, and so we claim certain promises. Uh, for example, Psalm 91, it talks about he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High, shall rest under the shadow of the Almighty. And then you, you read further on, and, he, and he's describing a man in battle. He's not just describing somebody who's hanging out in his house, uh, watching, uh, you know, movies, and, uh, you know, just sitting on his butt coming to church once a week. And uh, we have Christians that are claiming Psalm 91 for protection, protection from infirmity, protection from their enemies, you know, he says in the psalm, a thousand will fall at my side, ten thousand are my right hand, but it will not come nigh me. Uh, you know, it, it, it talks about how no arrow will penetrate him, it won't, no plague will come near his tent. All these amazing promises. But what's the context of that? David wrote that when he was about to go meet Goliath. He wrote that when he was in battle. He wrote that as a man of war. What does that mean? That means that we can't claim Psalm 91 if we're not a man or a woman of war. That is an active promise that when you take risks, when you're living in faith, when you're going out into battle, when you're going out on a limb, God shows off His stuff. God loves to show off when we go out on a limb and we're out there in enemy territory. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy for us to talk about certain things 
in the confines of a tent and the confines of a church building and the confines of a conference where everybody agrees with you. But what Psalm 91 is about and what Genesis 14 is about and Hebrews 7 is about is that you're going out there in the midst of your enemies and you're seeing God protect you and you're seeing God show off and you're seeing God move and you're seeing God do great miracles. I have never seen God do as many miracles than have I stepped out in faith and started moving out in the word of knowledge in restaurants and in parks and doing crusades in the streets and seeing God move among the heathen as uh, Philip, who was the prototype evangelist, went into a city and proclaimed Christ. And it says that there was great joy in the city because many people who were possessed of devils and diverse diseases and epilepsy were healed and uh, it's because he went out into a place where Christ was not known and so as we understand this we realize that as we connect our money to kingdom expansion as we connect our money to mission as we connect our money to going to where Christ is not named as we connect our money to uh, equipping people and raising up servants and raising up people who can go into culture and begin to take territories for God. God will bless it. God will honor it. God will show off. God will do great things. How many understand what we're saying here? And so, you know, in, uh, where I live, there's no parking. Uh, we have no parking in our church. I had some of my friends come and I haven't been leading our church for many years and then recently I just came back and I have people who come and they're amazed at how many people come to our church and there's no parking. I mean, it goes against all the church growth strategies. You have to drive around for 20 minutes before you could even find a spot. And uh, it's not like we have a mega church, but for that area, it's, it's big. So we, uh, you know, it's a difficult thing. And uh, sometimes I joke with the church and I say, you know what, Uh, don't claim Psalm 91 and and, and don't only use your faith when you're praying for parking. (laughs) That's not the way God outlines Psalm 91. And so there there is a, a, a real challenge in Psalm 91 to read the context, not to isolate the text, not to just take one or two pet verses and understand the calling that we have to go where it's dangerous, to go where it's uncomfortable. That's why we could even get involved in interfaith things to be a witness. That's why we could get involved uh, in community work, serving on community boards, getting involved in working with political leaders, getting involved in working in the marketplace. I believe that Sunday is to equip us for Monday. It's all about kingdom expansion. It's not about the Sunday ministry. Uh, You have CEOs who come to churches, and the best that they could ever hope for is to become the head usher because there is no vision for anything outside the four walls, and the church uses them for their tithe when they're connected to warfare. They're connected to dominion. They're connected to the Psalm 91. They're connected to having influence. And it even hurts our ability for God to touch others to give to our ministry, not just us. And so the more we're going out there, we're going to see this aspect of the Melchizedek ministry of blessing the tithe in the midst of battle manifest. How many understand this?
Let's go to um, Hebrews 7. Here's another aspect of Jesus. It says, Jesus is the guarantor, someone say guarantor, of a better covenant. Did anyone sign a document making themselves a guarantor? Right? Before you get a car or house or maybe a, a minor needs a credit card or something, or you have to be a guarantor. That means that they're going to come knocking at your door if a bill is not paid, right? So you're the one, your life and your money is standing behind that signature. So Jesus is called the guarantor of a better covenant. Isn't that amazing that the new covenant doesn't depend on us, it depends on Jesus, right? Um, it gets into this a bit more um, in... Um, Hebrews 8, it says in verse 6, As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it was enacted on better promises. So he's the mediator of that um, new covenant. And let's go to Hebrews 6 now. We're trying to experience Christ as the guarantor of the new covenant. And... The new covenant is predicated upon the covenant that was first given to the patriarchs. And let's go to Hebrews 6.13. It says, When God made a promise to Abram, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it, he guaranteed it, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And then he says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so we find here that the, the covenant, uh, the new covenant, was based on a promise that God made to Abraham. Um, and it, it's very powerful because it says that God swore that this covenant would take place based on himself. And, and it's almost inaccurate, really, to say that God made a covenant with Abraham. He really didn't. Actually, just look at this for a second. Let's go to Genesis chapter 15. And Genesis 15, starting with verse 12. It says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So, someone say, Abram was sleeping. I just want to make this clear. You, you read that, right? I'm not making it up. A deep sleep fell upon Abram, right? So then God starts pronouncing aspects of the covenant. Know for certain that your offspring 
will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and servants. They'll be afflicted for 400 years. And he begins telling them some of the things that, that, that are going to happen. Now let's go to verse 17. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed through those pieces. What pieces? Well, in the previous verses, uh, we see that God commanded Abram, verse 9, to bring a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, and a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon, and he brought him all these, and he cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half, right? And so it says that God manifests himself as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch and passed between those pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, to your offspring, I'll give you the land. So look at what happened here. In the, the days of the Middle Eastern kings, they were called suzerainties. Um, to ratify a covenant, they would bring animals, they would cut the animals in half, and then the king and the head of another nation that he conquered would walk between the pieces of the animals and they would do a figure eight. And as they were doing the figure eight in between the pieces of the animals, they would recite the blessings of obedience to this new king. They often called themselves the king of kings. And they would also recite the curses of not following the stipulations of this covenant. And they would say something like, as the blood of this animal was shed, so will my blood and, or our nation be judged and our blood be shed if we do not uphold the terms of this covenant. So they would recite this while walking in between the pieces. So basically, God told Abraham to cut the animals in half. But instead of Abraham walking with God and reciting the covenant, God put Abraham to sleep. And that's what Hebrews 6 is talking about. He had to swear by himself. Why? Because man cannot keep the covenant. How many understand that? It's not up to us. The covenant, the guarantor, is not even our obedience. The guarantor is Jesus. And the blood that was shed is Jesus. Matter of fact, uh, in uh, a passage of Scripture in uh, Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 42, when God is prophesying of the coming Messiah, He literally calls the coming Messiah the covenant. He is the covenant. He didn't just make a new covenant. He literally is the covenant. Uh, isn't that amazing? He is the promise. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one could come to the Father but through Him. And so when we feel like we're failing, as long as we go to Him in faith, the blood will always cover us. As long as we come to Him, as long as we repent, as long as we apply His sacrifice in our life, we have to realize that it depends on what He has done. He is the finished work. And so amazing. And while Abraham was sleeping, the greatest foretelling of the New Covenant was enacted. The greatest covenant 
in cosmic human history and beyond was done while man was asleep. Isn't that amazing? And so Jesus is the guarantor. Not you, not your works, not your church, not your obedience, not anything else. Jesus is the only guarantor. Wow. Now, does that give us a license to sin? God forbid, as Romans 6 says. How shall we continue in sin, knowing that God's grace has been put upon us? So uh, Titus chapter 2 says, The grace of God teaches us to deny ungodly lusts, right? So it's the opposite. This gives us reverence. It gives us awe. It gives us fear. It gives us appreciation. It gives us worship. And we're really connected to this guarantor. We will want to live for him. We'll want to honor him. And if we mess up, then we come to him. But if we want to live in deliberate sin, then we are trampling on the blood of Christ. And we're not honoring this blood. And so you can't have it both ways. The grace of God commands us to obedience, not to disobedience. And so it both covers us, cleanses us while we're asleep, while we had nothing to do with it, but also empowers us and encourages us to live for Him. It's powerful. So the guarantor of the new covenant strengthens us and enables us to follow him, follow our kingdom assignment, not disobey it. And if you want to disobey it, then you're not really connected to it. Are we hearing this? All right, so he is the guarantor. And that's what Hebrews 6 is talking about, that he had to swear by himself And in many, many ways, he didn't really make the covenant with Abraham. I mean, Abraham was a passive participant. He was there. Technically, he was there. But he did not recite the terms of the covenant. He didn't walk through the animal pieces. He didn't talk about the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. Jesus had to do it all. Praise God. Isn't that amazing? And he didn't even talk about the curses for disobedience. He just talked about the blessings of faith in him as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. So even then the Son of Man will be lifted up and whosoever believes in him will not perish. So um, we see Jesus revealed as the guarantor. So say, Jesus is my guarantor. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? Uh, Let's skip to Hebrews chapter 10. We could hit every chapter. I'm just trying to. Be led by the Spirit here. Hebrews chapter 10, let's experience Jesus as the one who gives us access into the most holy place. Let's go to Hebrews 10, 19. It says, therefore, brothers, now this is after describing in detail in chapter 8 and 9 how uh, Jesus didn't come with the blood of bulls and goats that could not cleanse us from sin but only cleanse the flesh, but he came with his own blood into the most holy place to take away our sins. And so in verse 19, it says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Oh, that's incredible. The most holy place. And, and you know, I'm sure you all know this, but looking at the first testament when they had the, the tabernacle of Moses You had the outer court where everybody could congregate by the thousands, arguably by the millions, 
Uh, that was called the court of the Gentiles because even the Gentiles could dance with the Jews. Uh, they, they could observe the feasts. And then you had the holy place where only the priests, those who were the sons of Aaron and, and the tribe of Levi, came and they were able to minister those duties in the altar and, and also sacrifice the animals. And then once a year, the third part of the tabernacle was the most holy place separated by a huge tent where the most holy place was protecting the presence of God from the uh, ability of humans to enter in and view God and, and, and walk and have access to his presence. But once a year in the Day of Atonement, the high priest was able to come into the most holy place. And so once a year, someone say once a year, the Day of Atonement, a human was able to experience the face of the Father. And history tells us that they would tie a rope around his waist with bells because if the high priest was unclean, God's presence would strike him down dead and they would have to pull him out because if they went in there to get him, they would be struck down dead as well. And uh, Jewish history tells us that they would keep the high priest up for 24 to 48 hours reading the Torah to him before he went into the holy place, most holy place. So it would negate or marginalize or limit the amount of uncleanness he would have in his mind and his heart. Um, and so as, as a Jew reads this, they would really be rocked with us. He's, oh, yeah, you know, the most holy place, it's fine. Uh, we're used to that. But uh, understanding the context of the Hebraic mindset, I mean, this is huge. One man, for a momentary time, maybe a half hour, an hour, whatever it was, one day a year, the Day of Atonement can experience God's presence. And what he's saying here is that we have access to the face of the Father 24 hours a day because Jesus came in beyond the veil, which was his flesh, and broke it open. That's why when he said it is finished, it tells us in the Gospels that the curtain ripped in two and then there was an earthquake. The presence of God was now open to all, and just 40 days uh, later, uh, actually 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God was poured out on all flesh. So in the context of that, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is to say, his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the high house of God, this is how we should respond to that. Let us draw near. Someone say, I should draw near. You don't have to repeat the rest. With a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Wow. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is amazing, amazing. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. So, it's not just uh, individualistic where we come into the holy, most holy place, but it's corporate. It's because we can come into the most holy place, now let's encourage everybody. Let's not neglect the assembling of ourselves together. Uh, in other words, 
Uh, just because I could come into the presence of God doesn't mean I don't need church anymore. I could just stay home and watch Joel Osteen on TV. I have the Holy Spirit in the Bible. No, let us even more stir one another. Let's come together. Let's encourage each other. It's not just about you. It's about your brothers and sisters. It's about how we can mutually edify each other. It's how we can be a force on the earth. It's how we can be equipped, how we can go out and not just stir one another to have good worship, not just stir one another to experience uh, the power of God, not just to stir one another so we can get slain in the Spirit, not just to stir one another that we can receive a personal prophecy, not just to stir one another so that we can receive personal healing, to stir one another to good works. Uh, That means uh, the purpose of us coming together is in the marketplace uh, to receive from God so that we can glorify the Father as salt and light in our communities. And so we come together corporately into the most holy place. And as I was saying yesterday, uh, as we examine the passages dealing with the prophetic, as you have a ministry that has an awesome prophetic call uh, we read passages in, in the Old Testament, the First Testament. Uh, for example, Jeremiah 23, where God is rebuking the prophets that ran without His Word, that prophesied out of the imaginations of their own heart, who spoke things that God never told them to say. And His correction was, You never stood in my counsel. That is deep, uh, Jewish tradition, I try to read as much as I can on the rabbinic writings and different things like that. Jewish tradition is that God had his, has His council of 70 in the heavenly places. And He makes decisions with them. Whether they're angels or humans, nobody really knows. And what God is saying is the First Testament prophets did not just have an oracle. It wasn't just they had a message that they brought. The First Testament prophets were literally in the counsel of God as the decision was being made. They were participants in what was about to happen in the earth, which is why it says in Amos that he doesn't do anything without first telling his prophets. Isn't that amazing? And so when we get into deep travail, when we get into deep prayer, we're literally grappling and groaning and wrestling with God involved in what is about to happen, what is about to transpire, actually participating in the destinies of people, the destinies of nations. That's why when you're in deep prayer, you could be groaning and you could actually tell that, that, that you're literally fighting for someone's soul, literally fighting for a nation, literally fight while you're in the counsel of God. Where God is making a decision and He's bringing you into that. It's too deep for me to understand. And why do I say that? Because in the First Testament, there were only a few that were in the council of God. Now we could all be in the council. That's why when it says that we could enter the most holy place, that's where God convenes His council. We look like, you know, we just come to church begging for some crumbs. We think we're victims. We're always complaining about our politicians. God never called our politicians to be the salt of the earth and light of the world. Called the church. If our nation is going to hell, it's a reflection of the church. And most people don't understand. 
the calling they have to participate in the decision-making process. We're not giving God advice in this council. We're not telling him what to do. But he has given us the legal right to represent him on the earth as his hierarchy. God doesn't do anything without men. That's why Jesus had to become flesh and blood to destroy Satan and bring salvation and reconcile the world to himself because he gave the earth over to Adam. And so he wants us to participate in the future. If all we do is come to church once a week and sit on our behinds trying to get a personal word and leave Monday to Saturday alone, the enemy of God will run rampant. And that's what is happening. When Jesus became that which gave us access in the most holy place, he gave us the ability not just to feel blessed, to feel the Spirit, to get a word, to feel joy, but to change the destiny of nations to be part of his council. If you want to read more about that, read Jeremiah 23, read 1 Kings 22, where Micaiah the prophet was in the council of the Lord when he was making a decision. Read Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah was in the council of the Lord, when he said, whom shall I send? I feel the Holy Ghost in his place. But I'm forced, I just want to finish this, I want to move forward, let's go. There's so much more that could be said about this. Uh, Hebrews 12 is another experience of Jesus. Just a few more points and then we'll be finished. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, what witnesses? Hebrews 11. The list of the saints. Marvelous to know that the church is made up of those who have departed in the first and second testament and us so what this is talking about is we can get encouragement by reading about the saints of the first and second testament that are part of the church and yes the first testament saints were in the church it says in Acts 7 Stephen calls them the church in the wilderness we're all the seed of God from the line of Seth it's not about physical Jew and Gentile. It's about the seed of God, Genesis 3, uh, 15, where the seed of the woman is against the seed of the serpent. So you've got to look at Scripture in terms of the two seeds. That's how human race is divided. It's not divided into Jew, Gentile. and that's, that's the physical body. It's divided into the two seeds. And it happens to be that some are physical Jews that God used tremendously who will restore. We're looking for that restoration, Romans 11. But... Uh, not all Jews are Jews. They have to be a Jew inwardly. That's the seed of God. So not all Jews were really Jews, just the remnant were. And it's the same thing. Not everybody in the church is really in the church. It's just the remnant, right? Uh, and so the remnant is part of the church, whether it's the First Testament, Second Testament, so we can read about them. Somehow or another, they're egging us on. And uh, we're part of that church. And then it says, let us run with endurance the race that was set before us. Now, how are we going to do that? It says, verse 2, looking 
to Jesus, the founder, the pioneer, or the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Wow. Looking unto Jesus. And so when it says Jesus is the pioneer or the founder or the author, well, that's talking about is two things. One, it's talking about, again, the apostolic master building structure that he laid out. He's the pioneer of the New Testament, the pioneer of our faith, the pioneer of the church, of the kingdom age. But the kingdom is made up of people like us. So he initiated your salvation and my salvation. Isn't that great? We love him because he first loved us. We take no credit. We're saved by grace. It is the gift of God. So he saved us. He is the author. He's the one who initiated it. Uh, and the perfecter of our faith, which means that he saved us. He's the only one who can mature us. He's the only one who can transform us. You cannot change yourself. I cannot transform myself. It's just going to be an exercise in futility when I try to change myself. The only thing I could ever do is to give him space, carve out time every day, give him opportunity to work on my soul, to change me by pouring over his word, by seeking him. He's the only one who could change me. As John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. So he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. So we have to experience him in that way. We have to give him room. Give him space to perfect that which he started. Isn't that great? Um, and so the responsibility is on us to give him room. And um, there's so much more we could say about that, but I don't want to go on too long. Now let's go to Hebrews 13, and we're going to look at the last way that we're dealing with uh, in terms of experiencing Jesus. Hebrews 13. Let's experience him as our equipper. Hebrews 13, 20, it says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you. Someone say, equip me. With everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, we see here that God equips us through Jesus. So Jesus is not just our healer. The church is not just a hospital. I know we just want to come to church as a hospital. The church is not just a family. The church is an army, right? So he wants to heal us so he can Send us, right? Uh, that's why, you know, you have some ministries that are totally built upon soaking and nothing ever happens. They just want to soak. And uh, friends of mine who minister in such contexts, although I'm not sure how many of them are still taking place, tell me that they are the worst givers. Because it's all narcissistic. It's self-focused. Now, don't shout me down because I'm preaching real good, as Brother Hagin would say. (laughs) 
so, <laughs> uh, so anyway, I have fond memories of Brother Hagen. But uh, so we have uh, people who just come to soak. And, and you know, uh, they just want to get ministered to, and that's fine. But basically, there, there comes a point at which soaking becomes sinful, if that's all you want to do, right? Uh, we have gone from preaching theology to therapy in the church. People think doctrine and theology is sinful. It's not user-friendly. When it used to be a few hundred years ago that all the universities centered every discipline, whether it was science, rhetoric, mathematics, philosophy, history, architecture, whatever it was, art, music, was centered around theology. Theology was very practical. And then we wind up having people come who are not godly, took over these universities. They segmented theology into a small department and it got into the church. Now we think theology is just for professional ministers. No, theology means the study of theos, God. I think all of us should give ourselves to studying God, don't you think? Instead, we come to church to get motivated. And that's okay, God does that. There's room and there's a time and place for that. We really do need that. The book of Proverbs filled with pithy sayings, practical things, practical living. So we do need that. But we also have to center that around God, knowing God. And so uh, as we think of this whole thing, we realize that even when we get charismatic and Pentecostal, we turn it around for ourselves because our presuppositions are totally individualistic, totally self-focused. So even when we're thinking about the gifts of the Spirit, it is for us. We said the baptism of the Holy Ghost is so we could speak in tongues. No, speaking in tongues is the evidence. It was so that we could be a witness of His resurrection, so we could testify. That's what Acts 1, 8 and 9 says. Into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The whole point of the power of God is to send you, not so you can stay in your closet speaking in tongues. You speak in your tongues so you can go, not so that you can feel good. I remember one time, uh, I was saved about six months and uh, was preaching. And I, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with subways. I don't know your context good enough, but in New York City, you know, mass transit is huge. So... I was going out into the New York City subways, preaching and giving my testimony as a professional rock musician. I got saved and all that stuff. And I was just going and doing that. And I remember one day, we used to go every Sunday. I'd go three nights a week and on Sunday after church. I remember one Sunday, my friend said, okay, we're going to go. I said, wait a minute, I, I just need to pray through a little more. So I was praying and I just felt a real burden. He said, okay, I'll call you in an hour. He calls me in an hour. He says, are you ready? I said, no, 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 I just feel like I just need to pray a little more. He says, okay, I'll call you in another hour. He calls me another hour. I said, you ready? No, I said, I'm trying to pray through. So he said, okay, I'll call you in another hour. He calls me in another hour. He said, are you ready? I said, no, I, I'm just trying to pray through. He said, wait a minute, don't you think that maybe you're doing the wrong thing? Instead of praying, you should be out preaching the way you're supposed to. I said, I don't know. I'm not getting anywhere anyway, so I might as well try it. And so... 
I got up and I didn't feel too spiritual. I didn't feel like I was in the right place. I didn't feel like I was ready. I didn't feel like I was prepared. But as soon as I opened up my mouth, I was filled with the Holy Ghost. The power of God fell. We preached to 3,000 people three or four nights. And one day a week on Sunday, on the uh, we have a, a ferry, a boat. It goes from uh, Brooklyn to Staten Island. And we have 3,000. We have a captive audience. I timed it 22 minutes. Preached every day. Uh, three nights a week, 21 minutes, then give an altar call. Paragon would fall. I mean, it was unbelievable. I could tell you stories. And I realized then that the Spirit of God is given to us, not just to know Him, but to make Him known. Prayer can be a substitute for obedience sometimes. And I spend more time praying than I do studying and anything else. I'll tell you the truth. But sometimes... We use that as an excuse. We use soaking as an excuse. We're never going to feel fully ready. I'll be honest with you. I never think I've spent enough time with Jesus to do what I'm doing now. I'm always longing to be alone with him. Even when I'm preaching, I wish I wasn't here. I wish I was alone with him. There's never a time when I think I've had enough time with him. I'll be honest with you. That, that's the reality of it. Um, and, and the biggest source of my fussing and complaining is that I want to be with him. Uh, it's not because I want a new car. No, I don't really care about that stuff. My kids have to dress me and buy me things because I don't really care about it. You know, I, I, you know. So, uh, and as we look at the scriptures, if I had time, I'd go through. Look, look at the burning bush experience of Moses. Moses was minding his own business. He was in the wilderness taking care of the sheep. And he saw a burning bush that was not consumed. And he said, let me go look into this marvelous sight. And he turned aside to look. And as he turned aside, God said, remove your shoes for the place that you are standing is holy ground. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he told him something. You see, Moses didn't just go there. And God didn't just call him there so that he can have a transformational experience. This is where the soaking crowd starts and ends. When God revealed himself to Moses, he had an agenda. Someone say he had an agenda. He has an agenda for you. He loves the world so much he wants to reveal himself to the world. He wants to show off his stuff. God will never give you a spiritual experience without expecting you to share it, without equipping you, without sending you, even if it's to one person, even if it's to your spouse or your children or your co-workers or your neighbors. It may not be a big crusade, but it could be one or two people. Maybe it's to pray someone through. But Every experience we read about in the Scripture, God had an agenda of revealing Himself, of making Himself known to a person so that they can make Him known to somebody else. So whether it's the burning bush experience when God said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go and celebrate a feast in the wilderness, or whether it was uh, uh, Isaiah when he saw the cherubim seraphim worshiping and saying, holy, holy, holy. If this was the present day charismatic movement, we talk about the visions of God and the experience of being with angels and that we'd stop there. But in the biblical sense, 
God revealed Himself to Isaiah. And then at the end of the day, He says to Isaiah, Whom shall I send? And who will go for me? When you have an experience, when you receive a prophetic word, when you get an impartation in this tent, it's not just so you can feel good. It's not just so you can be healed up. When you go through the deliverance ministry this coming week, it's not just so you can feel good about yourself. It's not just so you can have self-esteem. It's so that you can go and bring what Jesus has done to you for the world. Freely you have received. Freely you ought to give. To know God and to make Him known. And so He said to Isaiah, Whom shall I send? And who will go for me? When He revealed Himself to Ezekiel, He told him, Stand up like a man and I will speak to you. And He told him to eat His words that were as sweet as honey when He first ate it and bitter when it came into His stomach, showing Him that as we have experiences with God, it is initially sweet, but then after that it could be bitter as we are rejected, as we are hurt, as we experience the pain and the travail and the challenges of rejection and betrayal and money, and all this other stuff. And so He equips us to send us. He doesn't equip us so that we can come back next week all fired up. He equips us so that Monday to Saturday we can make a difference. Every single experience, if we had time, we would go into it. Uh, he says to Paul, he reveals himself to Paul. In Acts chapter 9, Paul was probably on a horse because it says he fell down. Jesus appeared to him and said, Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? And, and Paul said, who are you? And he said, it's Jesus. What was Paul's reaction? He said, what do you want me to do for you, Lord? Paul understood the nature of the Hebraic mindset. Lord means I'm his servant. We don't say it. It's not politically correct. But the literal translation in the New Testament is that we are slaves. Dula, slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a popular message. We're bought with a price. We're not our own. We don't soak so we can feel good. We don't come to church just so we can be healed up. As we're getting healed, we say, what do you want me to do, Lord? So Jesus wants to reveal himself as our equipper. What are you called to do? What is God trying to get out of you? He does want something from us. Matthew 25 and Luke 20. Matthew 20, I mean, God's a good businessman. He reaps where he sows. He's invested in you. He wants something from you. What does he want? What is he calling you to do? Another question I have to ask myself all the time. It's the thing I grapple with all the time. Am I seeking God commensurate with my calling? Are you seeking God to the measure of the assignment God has given you? Because that's the only thing that will limit you. 
Let's just put our hands up. We've experienced Jesus. I think if we were to count the last two nights, it would be in ten ways. I tried to hit areas that are not commonly known. There was things I could have shared from these passages that were something you probably already knew. I'm just trying to hit different areas. It says in Ephesians 4, verse 10, it says, The one who descended, that is Christ, is the same who ascended far above the heavens, that he may fill all things. Some would say fill all things. Not just spiritual things, but things, physical things. And then it says, And he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. For what? To bring a bless me club to verse 12, perfect or equip the saints. So Jesus equips the church through the fivefold ministry gifts. So the ministry gifts, as we examine the life of Christ, you could see apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, and evangelist. So each of the ministry gifts is a uh, segment or an expression of the ministry of Christ. It's a gift to the church for the primary purpose of equipping, not fleecing the, the saints. Equipping, maturing the saints for the work of the ministry. And how do we define the work of the ministry? Work in a ministry is not just planning church. It's not just setting you up as a Sunday school director or sound minister or media ministry and head usher. But the context is verse 10 where he says that he ascended that he might fill all things, which means that equipping the saints for the work of ministry has to be defined in whatever realm you're called to operate in. You're called to fill the earth up with his glory. So if you're an architect, the fivefold ministry to equip you to be the best architect, to work in excellence, and use your architectural gift to glorify, to do good works and glorify your Father in heaven, bring the influence of the kingdom. If you're an athlete, if you're a musician, if you're a politician, if you're an economist, if you're a business leader, or if you're a mother, a father, a social worker, whatever you're called to do, he needs you. You're a minister. Because he can't fill up all things without all of you. And all we are here for is not to do the work of the ministry, but to equip you as under-shepherds of the great shepherd who wants to equip you. He uses us to bring grace gifts to you. So you don't get it directly from heaven. You get it from the fivefold ministry, not salvation. But for equipping for the work of the ministry, you have to sit under fivefold ministers. I'm not making it up. It's right there. The grace of God comes through, look at verse 7, uh, comes through the measure of the gift of Christ. It says, you've been given grace, verse 7, Ephesians 4, according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Then he said he gave that gift when he ascended on high and gave gifts to men. What did he give? Verse 11, he gave some to be apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. That means the gift of God, the grace of God, is given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. What is the gift of Christ? The fivefold ministry. Those are the ministry gifts. If you want to serve God, you need to sit under fivefold ministry. Each fivefold minister has a different level of anointing and authority because it says in verse 7, according to the measure of the gift. 
So everyone has a different measure, a different contribution, a different anointing. If you receive a prophet in the name of a prophet, you receive his, his reward. What's his reward? The measure of the gift God has given him. Not the prophetic word only, but the measure of the gift. And that could be a prophetic gift too and a prophetic anointing. And so the fivefold ministers are here to perfect you. To perfect you for the work of the ministry. To work in the ministry, you have to get out of your mind, is not just church ministry. You don't keep saying, well, when did you get into the ministry? Meaning church ministry. You see, you've been captivated by the Greek and Roman mindset that they're a professional clergy and you're off the hook. All you got to do is show up on Sunday and we do all the work. That's not biblical. You are to be equipped to do the work of the ministry, which in the context is to fill up all things, meaning to bridge the gap, Ezekiel 20, to bridge the gap between heaven and hell, to bridge the gap between heaven and earth, to bridge the gap by bringing Jesus in that realm of influence that he's called you to walk in. That's how he fills up all things in the context of the earth. And so we're here to send you as his ministers. If you're a police officer, do it to the glory of God. If you're an athlete, do it to the glory of God. Whatever you're doing, if you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, obviously you're not going to be a prostitute to the glory of God. So please take this in the proper context with boundaries. But whatever you're called to do, that's why I say it, whatever you're assigned to do by God, do it to the glory of God. You don't know what to do, then just whatever your right hand finds to do, it all its might, says in Ecclesiastes. Do what you know is right, right in front of you. How could God tell you what he wants if you don't even do what's right in front of you? And so let's begin, let's raise our hands, let's begin to soak. Let him reveal himself. So he could send you. So he say, Lord, send me. Equip me to send me. Let our church be an equipping center. Use the fivefold ministry gifts in my life to equip me for the work of the ministry. Why don't the worship team just come up or whoever, maybe just the, the piano player, and let's all stand up.